Shock and awe is a military doctrine first employed by the United States in 2003 during Operation Iraqi Freedom. On March 21st, the United States launched 1,700 air sorties over the skies of Baghdad, including 504 cruise missiles. All day long, Baghdad was hit with precision strike after precision strike. Military targets were taken out. The city's infrastructure was crippled. Shock and awe knocked out the city's power grid and water supply. You see, the intention was to overwhelm the Iraqis. Military strategists call this rapid dominance. The invader tries to exhaust the occupier until they lose the will to fight. This colossal show of force paralyzes any resistance and it convinces everyone on the ground of the inevitability of their defeat. And by the time the troops roll in, the locals have already capitulated and accepted a new regime. The whole idea is to wage war with minimal bloodshed. And that's what happened in Iraq. By April the 5th, just two weeks later, coalition forces had seized Baghdad. Well, what we've been reading about over the last few months here in Revelation is God's implementation of a shock and awe strategy. God has been exercising a rapid dominance. From heaven, the righteous judge has riddled the planet with surgical strikes. He's pummeled the devil's infrastructure by breaking seven seals, by blasting seven trumpets, by dumping seven bowls full of his wrath. As we saw last week, Babylon the Great is fallen. Chronologically now, we're still at the end of Revelation chapter 16 in the seventh bowl. You remember God launched an aerial assault. 100-pound hailstones were falling from the sky. Man's blasphemy is receiving a biblical punishment. And it's an act of mercy. For to lessen the carnage, God tries to exalt man's resistance or exhaust man's resistance and hasten an acceptance of the inevitability of his defeat. You'd think mankind would repent, but instead man shakes his fist in God's face to the bitter end. All this shock and awe is to prepare the world for the final ground invasion. God's goal is a regime change. You've got to realize this world belongs to God. Its creator gave authority over the earth to the first couple, Adam and Eve. Thus, when Adam rebelled, Satan was able to usurp the authority from the hapless humans. And today, Satan has taken over a world that doesn't belong to him. He's become a squatter. On the cross, Jesus began the process of taking back his creation. He started with the legalities. On Calvary, Jesus paid off the liens, the debts our sin had caused. Then when he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, Jesus walked right into God's courthouse and reclaimed the title deed to planet earth. We saw him do it in Revelation chapter 5. You remember John said, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? One of heaven's elders spoke up and declared, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. Jesus created the universe now he's purchased it, and he holds the papers, yet it's not yet in his possession. 
Ownership doesn't necessarily mean occupation. So here's our current situation. The earth is overrun with Satan and demons and evil men. The rebels keep God at bay and have their own way. It is a jungle out there. But Jesus is the king of the jungle. And he's about to prove that very point. He's got papers in his hands and invasion in his plans. He's coming to put devils, rebels, and all their stuff out on the curb. Chapter 19 describes the end of this current age. The revolt that Satan launched finally comes to an end. Understand, we can know the future. History is no mystery. The final chapter has already been written. If you want to know how it all ends, read Revelation chapter 19. And it's interesting how this chapter opens. Lots of saber rattling on earth. The earth is preparing for a war, whereas heaven is preparing for a wedding. Heaven is in party mode. It's hosting a celebration. John begins chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Note this word, Alleluia. Its origins are Hebrew. It's a compound word. Alel, which means praise, and Yah, which is a contracted form of God's name, Yahweh. Put the two together, and the word means praise God. Alleluia! Praise God for His glory and salvation, whether men receive it or not. If the world wants to go to hell in a handbasket, so be it. But God is still to be praised for His heart to save. He says, for true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. The Babylonian harlot represented a phony and false religious system. The Antichrist claimed to be the Savior. In the end, he was revealed as a tyrant. The world will be duped. In contrast to phony and false, Jesus is true and righteous. He's true. He's genuine as opposed to counterfeit. And he's righteous. He's faithful as opposed to a liar. Jesus is everything this world is not. Verse 3, again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up. Forever and ever. Chapter 17 and 18 discuss God's overthrow of that two-headed Babylonian system. The horror of Babel was evil disguised as religion. It was a church without the church. This prostitute in the last days will seduce the world to deny God and pledge allegiance to the beast. And she's helped by a commercial system, also known as Babylon, which extorts the world's worship. You remember how it happens. A mark, a 666, will be needed to buy or sell. And to receive that mark, you'll have to sell your soul. People will suppress any lingering longings for the one true Christ, Jesus. And they'll bow their knee to this Antichrist. Chapter 18, verse 18, predicts that this evil system will burn to a crisp in one hour. Yet here we read, her smoke rises up forever and ever. In chapter 18, the earth weeped and wailed over her loss. In contrast, heaven shouts, Alleluia! And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! Now you might be interested to know this word, Hallelujah, 
appears 24 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, mostly in the book of Psalms. It's a common exclamation of praise. But did you know the word appears only four times in the New Testament? And guess where? All four are right here. It's as if God has saved up all His hallelujahs for this one moment. As man's rebellion reaches a breaking point on earth, God's praise crescendos in the heavens. For centuries, the heavenly host has watched Satan steal and kill and destroy. Now that he's finally on the ropes, heaven erupts in praise. A chorus of alleluias. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. A voice calls on heaven to praise God. And a mighty roar goes up. It's loud, man. Like a waterfall. Like a thunderclap. A great multitude shouts out, Hallelujah. You know how to say this word in English. But do you know how to pronounce Hallelujah in Spanish? Or in Arabic? Or in Berber? or in Mandarin, or in German, or in Yoruba? Do you know how to pronounce it? It's Alleluia. It's the same pronunciation in every single language. It's the universal word. Even heaven shouts Alleluia's to God. When you sing Alleluia, you speak the language of heaven. But that's just half of heaven's shout. The triumphant chorus rings out, For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Earth's impending collapse reminds heaven who it is that reigns. The Lord is omnipotent or all-powerful. Heaven is sure that there is no problem God can't solve. Wayne Vallis worked in the White House as a special assistant to Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan. When he finally called it quits, His resignation was full of despair. Wayne wrote, I've come to believe, especially after my time with Reagan, that there is no ultimate solution to human problems. Hopefully, you can trade more vexing problems for less vexing problems. Here's the opinion of a man who spent his whole adult life in government. The very best that humans can do is to trade more vexing problems for less vexing problems. And the reason human government is so impotent, it's because it depends on fallible and frail and foolish humans. Here is earth's only hope. God omnipotent reigns. Today, God sits on the throne in heaven and He's sovereign over human affairs. For the moment, He's allowing us to run the show and quite frankly make a mess. He's proving how incapable we are of governing ourselves. But the day is coming when the Omnipotent will flex His muscle and establish His kingdom on earth. He'll recreate a perfect world. Hear the sound from heaven thunder our hope. The Lord God Omnipotent reigns. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. 
Now notice this about the greatness of God. He is both omnipotent yet intimate. He is high yet He is nigh. He leads and He loves. Jesus is not only the king of the jungle, but He's the bridegroom who cherishes and nurtures His bride. And guess what? You are that bride. Yes, you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been betrothed. You're destined to marry the Lamb. Hebrew marriage rites were really in three stages. First was the engagement. Parents often arranged their children's marriage when the kids were still young, long before they reached adult age. Of course, if you're a teenage girl today, and you hear that, you're repulsed by that idea. But if you're the dad of a teenage girl, it's starting to make a lot of sense to you. You might want to bring that back. The second marital stage was the betrothal. The couple would meet at the home of the bride to exchange vows, and then immediately the groom would leave to prepare a place for he and his wife to live. Often this task involved building a room onto his father's house. From this point onward, the groom and the bride were legally bound with the exception of sexual relations. The marriage wasn't consummated until the feast, which was the third stage of marriage, the wedding feast. Once preparations were complete, the groom would return for his bride, sweep her up, and then take her back to their abode. There they would celebrate with family and friends as much as up to a week. And then they would enter the bridal chamber to begin their married life. And this is such a beautiful overview of Jesus' dealings with His church. In the Scripture, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. Think, think about it. Our marriage with Jesus has been prearranged. The New Testament teaches us that we were chosen for Him before we were born. When we put our faith in Him, we took a vow. We became betrothed. We committed our lives to Jesus and no one else. Jesus has now returned to heaven. In His Father's house, there are many mansions or rooms, He says. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And when He's finished... He's promised to return and take us to live with Him forever. And here we read about our marriage supper. We're told in verse 8 what the bride wears. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. The bride of Christ will be dressed to the hilt. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But will you... Be dressed to the hilt. This past July, Lydia Taylor got married. But rather than shell out big bucks on a wedding dress, she knitted her own wedding gown. Did a good job, didn't she? It took her four months and 100,000 stitches. And here we're told that we too are making our own wedding dress. When we meet Jesus, we'll be clothed in our own righteous acts. Do you know what that means? That means that some of you are going to be married to Jesus Christ for all eternity in your sweatpants and a hoodie. My, if you have any fashion sense at all, you can't let that happen. You can't be caught dead in a tattered t-shirt on your wedding day. That's why you should begin right now serving God with all your time and your effort and your money and your passion 
fashioning for you a bright garment made out of your righteous acts. All that you do for Him with love to Him is weaving for you a beautiful wedding gown for that day. Verse 9, Then He said to me, Right, blessed or happy are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's the big question for you. Have you saved the date? Have you noticed today when people get married, they send you a little card, a little refrigerator sticker magnet that says save the date? Have you, have you seen that? No, I know we haven't been given an actual date. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. But are you planning to be there? Are you excited about leaving this world behind and moving in with Jesus? You know, I've never met an engaged couple who wasn't ready for their wedding day. They were packed and eager and full of anticipation. Hey, this is the next big event on God's prophetic calendar. The rapture of the church. When God pours out His judgments on earth, notice His church is in heaven's banquet hall celebrating our marriage to His Son. Remember at His first coming, on the eve of His crucifixion, Jesus ate the Passover with His disciples. We call that the Last Supper. And at that Last Supper, Jesus talked about this marriage supper. In essence, He toasted His bride. Jesus told His disciples that He wouldn't drink of the cup again until He drank it with His followers in His kingdom. Well, here in Revelation 19, the marriage is consummated. The party has begun. Jesus and His bride have started to celebrate a love that will last for all eternity. He continues, And He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. Now the hymn here is the mighty angel that John saw back in chapter 18, verse 21. And this angel apparently made quite an impact on John. For one, the angel had a good arm. He threw a huge millstone into the oceans, announcing the fall of Satan's evil systems. In fact, John was so impressed by this angel and so overwhelmed by his revelation that he fell at his feet to worship him. Yet notice how the angel responds. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. You don't want to do that, buddy. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This angel is appalled that John would worship him. He's just a servant. He's just an errand boy for God, just like John. God alone is worthy of worship. You know, angels are awesome, magnificent creatures. If you ever saw an angel, you'd be tempted to worship him. But don't. There's only one angel who craves and relishes worship, and that's Satan. That's Lucifer of old, the fallen angel. Well, this angel tells John, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is a strategic verse for people like us who study and love and want to obey and teach the Bible. He's saying here that the spirit behind Scripture, the Bible's underlying theme, the burrow where all the rabbit trails lead. The subject of every predicate is Jesus. The Holy Spirit intends, always intends, for the written word to point to the living word. Now verse 11 shifts the focus. From heaven now to earth. From a bridal suite in heaven to a battle scene on earth. John writes, Now I saw heaven open. 
Now, early in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, heaven opened to let John and the church enter. Now heaven opens to let the lion out. Suddenly, John is on location in Israel. He's covering the final battle. He's standing on a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo. The French general Napoleon once stood in that same place, looked out over the vast expanse and remarked, all the armies of the world could maneuver for battle here. Well, according to verse 16, that's exactly what happens. The armies of a worldwide coalition of nations under the Antichrist will gather in the valley of Megiddo. Their sights are set on Jerusalem. You know, this is often called the battle of Armageddon, but Megiddo is just a staging ground. This is the battle for Jerusalem. According to Joel chapter 3 and verse 2, God will draw the nations to His holy city. God says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. If you've been with me to Israel, we've been in the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the Kidron Valley, right next to the Temple Mount, east of Jerusalem. He says, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have divided up my land. Notice God's beef with the nations. It's a very contemporary problem. He says, they have divided my land, and they had no right to do so. Hey, what we call the Holy Land today belongs to God, and He can give it to whomever He pleases. It's His land. And yet today, the world community pressures Israel to divide up the land that God gave them and give parcels to the Palestinians. Even when their Arab neighbors have way more than enough territory for a Palestinian state. Even Jerusalem today is a divided city, east and west. And this angers the Almighty. Hostile troops will one day march into the Holy Land to fight for Jerusalem. But while camped near the mountain of Megiddo or Armageddon, a strange, unexpected development occurs. Heaven opens. And now a new general appears. Verse 11 tells us, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. You know, when Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church of the last days, He was called, He called Himself the Faithful and True Witness. Jesus' promises are sure and certain. If the Laodiceans had repented, they would have known. But now, their last day's lukewarmness has devolved into stone-cold rebellion. And Jesus' promise of judgment is just as sure as His promise of salvation. John sees a man called faithful and true on a white horse. You know, the first time Jesus marched into the city of Jerusalem, He was on the back of a burrow. But He takes no donkey ride this time. He's on a white stallion. And don't mistake this horse for some ceremonial steed. You know, the Romans, they'd like to put their conquering generals on the back of a beautiful stallion that would sort of prance and strut and parade to the crowd. A show animal. This is no show animal. This is a war horse. This horse is ready to charge. He's been bred for battle. He's shaking his mane. He's stomping his hooves. Hot breath billows out of his nostrils. He's ready to charge. And we're told of his rider. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8, God tells us, 
There is a time of war and a time of peace. At his first entry into Jerusalem, Jesus rode a donkey. He associated himself with a beast of burden. Jesus came to serve, to bear our yoke. He came in humility, but not here. This time he comes to judge and make war. Jesus came the first time to save, but he comes the second time to slaughter. Recall the effort that Jesus makes throughout the tribulation to preach the gospel to mankind. Two prophets in Jerusalem, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, angels broadcasting through the sky. And yet mankind refuses to submit and end his rebellion. Think about it. Puny little man tries to draw down on the king of the jungle. Man, it's time the madness stopped. Isaiah 9 verse 6 labels Jesus the Prince of Peace. But he gets that title only after he kills off all his enemies. When Jesus returns to earth, he's coming to kick butt, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Moses made a stunning statement in Exodus 15 verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Isaiah 42 verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up His zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against His enemies. You need to know the Prince of Peace is no pacifist. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, Paul speaks of the rapture. Jesus will come in the clouds for His church. And in verse 18, Paul adds, Comfort one another with these words. I mean, this great snatching away, it's a comforting concept, but not so much the second coming. It should scare us straight. Hey, you want Jesus to be your Savior, not your judge. Love the Lamb. Don't make war with the Lord. On the day that Jesus returns, the Antichrist and his allies will muster a formidable force. His armies will stretch across the floor of the theater. Their strategy is to oppose the true Christ. That's when heaven opens. God's gladiator appears. Verse 12 tells us his eyes were like a flame of fire. They're burning with passion. And on his head were many crowns. You know, at his first coming, the only crown Jesus wore was a crown of thorns. Now he wears royal diadems. His head holds kingly crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Maybe Jesus has this, his own private combat name. Sort of like Red Baron or Top Gun or something like that. I don't know. Something cool sounding. King Richard I of Old England, he was known as the Lionheart. That'd be a good name for Jesus when he comes back. The Lionheart. Verse 13 tells us, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 63, the first four verses. Isaiah Isaiah sees a man with blood-soaked garments. And he asks this man the question, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Apparently the battle of Jerusalem will spill over into all of Israel, as far south as Basra, near the Dead Sea. I love what this man says to Isaiah. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is that? 
We sang about him this morning. Jesus is mighty to save. That can be said of no one other than Jesus. Who else can claim to be mighty to save? Then Isaiah asks him, Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And he answers the prophet, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Isaiah and John both see the Savior soaked, his robes soaked in the blood of his enemies. At his first visit, Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' bloody robe. But when he returns, his robe will be stained with the blood of the soldiers fighting for this revived Rome. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now who makes up this army? Who makes up the army in heaven? Well, probably four battalions. First, there's the angelic guard. The cherubim and the seraphim and the living creatures. These are all God's special ops. The special forces. Their helicopter-like wings and their ferocious grills and their night vision eyes. They're, they make them fierce fighters. And they've wanted a piece of the serpent since the day that he failed. They're ready for this battle. Well, the second battalion are those Old Testament believers. It's been a long time since Abraham and Joshua and David grabbed a sword and felt the rush and adrenaline of battle. There's not a lot of combat in heaven. They've had a lot of time to get psyched for this battle. They're ready too. And then third are the tribulation saints. These are the folks with fresh wounds. I mean, just recently they were martyred by the beast. They took one for the team, persecuted for Jesus. Hey, now they would like nothing more than to get even with their nemesis. And then the fourth battalion of the Lord's army. And you're not going to believe this. Get ready, my friends. It'll blow your mind. Who is this fourth battalion? It's you and it's me. The church will ride with Jesus. Jude 14 proclaims, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all. Colossians 3 verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. Realize this will be the mother of all battles. Jesus and heaven's army faces off with Satan and his allies. Modern armies of all the nations will be stretched out across Israel when suddenly a door will open in heaven and out gallops Jesus on His war mount. And behind Him, you and I and 10,000 of His saints come hooping and hollering. And I plan to ride my horse right in there behind Jesus. And you're thinking, I don't even know how to ride. You better learn. <laughs> well, maybe you'll know when you get there. Imagine when the call comes to mount up. Imagine that. We'll pull ourselves away from praise. We'll saddle up our steed. Suddenly, the door will open and like a plane descending out of a bank of clouds... The sky will break before us. We'll see a hostile battlefield. Military hardware aim right at us. Tanks will start firing their rockets. Missiles will launch. 
You'll hear surface-to-air zingers fly right past your head. Explosions, sizzling sounds. You'll think your heart's about to pound out of your chest. And then suddenly, you'll look down and you'll see a red dot, a laser light, right on your shirt. You've been marked, man. You've been targeted. A rocket is locked onto you. Maybe I've been watching too many movies. I'm not sure. (laughs) Oh, no, man, I'm cooked. And that's when something amazing is going to happen. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. This is the climactic conclusion of this galactic battle between God and Satan. Here is a showdown that has been brewing since creation. This is the much heralded battle of Armageddon. No other conflict has ever been this hyped. And yet the Super Bowl of the universe ends up a dud of a game. It's no contest. Jesus wins in a blowout, probably 777 to zip. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 predicts the defeat of Antichrist. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's all it's going to take. Jesus' breath and his brightness. Jesus is going to breathe on the beast the breath of death. Talk about some bad breath. This is breath that kills. He's going to blow the enemy away by breathing God's word. His words, even his breath, is like a sharp sword, John says. Think about this, the breath that breathed into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. The breath that breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus breathes that same breath and destroys the beast. And notice too, Paul tells us that the Antichrist is destroyed with the brightness of Jesus' coming. What his breath doesn't vaporize, the light of his glory will. The sheer brightness of his coming melts. It withers the beast and disintegrates the armies of the enemy. Hey, the Antichrist is going to suffer from a real severe case of sunburn. Then, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Here's an echo from Psalm chapter 2. It's part of God's answer to the dilemma of sin. You need to know, sin touches the people around you. Sin is not a victimless crime. You don't steal or lust or hate in a vacuum. It takes two to commit those sins. I mean, you steal from a storekeeper. And so for God to be merciful to that storekeeper, He's also got to restrain the thief. This means that if sinners don't get saved and stop sinning, then the sinner has to be stopped. And when Jesus returns, he is going to forcibly stop sinners. He's going to rule this world with a rod of iron. And trust me, as a result, planet Earth is going to be a better and safer and happier and a more peaceful place. You can count on it. For he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And notice how Jesus takes this also personally. He himself treads the winepress. In chapter 14, we saw that blood, not wine, squirts from this press. Jesus will crush sinners. Hey, we think we sin 
that when we, when we think we sin, we sin against ourselves. Oh, we say, I'm not hurting anybody. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you said that? Oh, I'm, I'm only hurting myself. Of course, that's seldom true. But even if your sin was private, it's still a defense against God's will and God's wisdom and God's heart. That's why at the core of all sin is a fist in God's face. Verse 16 tells us, He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Ancient warriors would decorate their faces and their limbs with body paint. It provided a menacing look. And here Jesus has a title scripted down his thigh. You can see it when he rides across the battlefield. It reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. The earth has been littered for millenniums with so-called kings and lords. But there is only one king of all kings and only one Lord of all lords. Jesus Christ is the champ and he's returning to earth to take on all challengers. Revelation 19 depicts Jesus, not as baby Jesus, not as gentle Jesus, not as Jesus blessing the children, not as Jesus breaking the bread. This is Jesus breaking the stiff necks of evildoers who won't stop sinning against God and their fellow man. And if He is the King, He has to take such action. I mean, we can't walk into the eternal state with people hell-bent on robbing and raping and cheating and swindling. That wouldn't be heaven. It would be hell. I'm sure you've seen that bumper sticker, Visualize World Peace. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Well, when I read Revelation, the revelation of Jesus and here in chapter 19, I visualize world peace. But here's how. Jesus comes back and He annihilates Satan and all who join in His rebellion. Then He retakes the reins of a runaway planet. He conquers His enemies. He establishes His kingdom. And then He enforces obedience to His sovereign will. Hey, then and only then will we realize world peace. Verse 17 tells us, Then I saw an angel, and i got a real gross picture for this, I'm just warning you. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Here's another invite to a supper. The church feasts at the marriage supper of the Lamb while birds and vultures feast on the flesh of the fallen at Armageddon. Birds fly to the battlefield to peck at the corpses. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. At the rapture, Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. He's going to surprise this evil world. No one's going to expect him. But at his second coming, seven years later, the armies of the earth are going to rally against him. The nations will be assembled to resist his arrival. Jesus is coming to defend Jerusalem. According to Zechariah 14, this all happens over the Mount of Olives. Imagine one day, earth is going to square off with heaven. Mankind is going to square off with God. And I say, pity the puny man. 
Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The demonic duo, the satanically inspired ruler, the Antichrist, the apostate religious leader who paves his way, the false prophet, these two are thrown into hell fire. And this isn't Hades, that temporary torment. This is Gehenna. This is the eternal lake of fire. Jesus said that God created this lake of fire for the devil and his angels. But its first two inhabitants are these two stooges. Chapter 19 closes. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their sword. And you might think, how can God take a life? How can God kill people? Last night I was on an airplane working on today's Bible study. And the young lady sitting next to me, she was looking over my shoulder. I didn't know it at the time. but She was looking over my shoulder and she was reading the Bible study. Well, finally she just blurts out. She says, how can you say Jesus crushes his enemies? And breaks their stiff necks. How can you say that? That doesn't sound very Joel Osteenish. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not picking on Joel. That's just what she said, all right? That's what she said. And, and let me tell you how I answered her. What God, I said, what God does to these rebels, He did to His only Son. For the Father sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion, a torturous death. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died in our place. You need to understand, at the cross, all these bowls of wrath were satisfied. That means that every death at Armageddon is a senseless suicide. Man doesn't have to die. They do so because they reject Jesus and they put themselves under God's wrath. And I hope no one today makes that same mistake. You see, King Jesus is returning to planet earth literally, actually. It's real, man. It'll happen. You can count on it. Look over Jerusalem. Keep looking there. And He'll split the eastern sky one day. With the breath of His mouth, with the brightness of His coming, Jesus will defeat the beast and His armies. Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives from the very spot where He ascended. There He'll descend. He's coming back to that very spot. And the Bible tells us that the, very, the mere weight of His big toe will trigger a colossal earthquake. It'll split the mountain in two. Jesus will bust through the eastern gate and into the temple mount. There He'll cleanse the temple and reign a thousand years. And then finally, the prayer will be answered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The war is finally over. Jesus has evicted the rebellious squatters and retaken possession of His planet. But He sure had to tear up the place in the process. And now the reclamation begins. And here is a glorious wonder of redemption. Oh, this sends chill bumps up and down my spine when I think about it. Everything that sin has damaged, Jesus intends to restore. Hallelujah.
He's going to fix it all. Chapter 19 closes with the universe under new management. Aren't you glad? And in chapter 20, now that the king of the jungle controls the jungle, he's going to turn it into a paradise. 